last time, last time we were thinking about the, the city of man, um, and tonight we're going to be thinking of the city of God. Um, remember that we're studying what God is revealed in Scripture between the fall of man and the worldwide judgment of the flood. And in the Scripture, that really is from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 5. It's known as the pre deluvian the pre-flood history of man. And we remembered last time how the Apostle Paul uh, spoke about this period of, of God's uh, revelation. Uh, and he spoke of this time as the old world, or in, in another verse he called it the world that then was. And we spoke quite a bit last time too long, so long, far too long last time, uh, we spoke about how this period uh, could well have been a very, very long period of time indeed. Uh, and that seems to be hinted at by well, the way Peter speaks of this time. But he certainly was sure of this. He spoke of this period as a model or a template for our day, for this world, the world that now is. Um, and he's saying that the, this world will follow a very similar path to the old world. It will be judged, it will end, there will be a day of the Lord, the only difference being that it will be, it will be judged by fire rather than by water. And last time we traced the city of man, we, we, we saw how the first city was built, talked about how that in itself wasn't an evil thing, it was part of God's common grace, but we also saw how that developed and how by deceit Satan, through the seed of the serpent, eventually changed the city of man, almost into a temple, almost into the temple of man, to the point where we have these sons of God, these kings, um, calling themselves God very similar to some of the Roman emperors did uh, many thousands of years later. And like, or as it will happen in the last days of our world, the old world reached such a pitch of sin, the man of sin stage, which we read of in Revelation, that the world couldn't go any further in its rejection of God. That the, the store, as it were, of sin had reached the limit, and man revolted against God to such an extent that the end came. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, the scripture says, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, the earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. Imagine the world, I mean we have violence in our world, but imagine if it was filled with violence where you couldn't even open your front door without some violent incident. That's how I understand the world to, be, to have been. And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. 
However, I said last time that this section of scripture is like um, that Charles Dickens novel, The Tale of Two Cities. We read of the city of man, which we spoke of last time. But the other side of the coin is the city of God. There is also this city of God. Because God had promised this, that I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That was the firm gospel promise that God had made. And that meant that there would be a city of God. There would be a community of the redeemed, if you like. There would be a people of God who would be preserved. The elect people of God. The seed of the woman. And that's really what we're looking at tonight. We've looked at, last time we could say we looked at the seed of the serpent. And how they built a city and corrupted a city. This tonight we're looking at the seed of the woman, the elect, the church of Christ, if you like, and how God preserved that covenant community. What tonight we can learn from this group of people. And that's why I read Genesis chapter 5, because Genesis chapter 5 is the second of the books, uh, the second of Genesis's ten generation genealogies, not really genealogies to be honest, but they're, we'll call them genealogies. There are quite a number of these ten um, section generations uh, in, in Genesis, and this is the second of them. And last time we looked at Genesis 4, which was a survey of, of the entire age of the old world, and that's where we looked at, at um, some of those wicked men, some of those giants, some of those kings at the end where they called themselves divine. But Genesis 5 is different. This is a genealogy which is very focused and specific. It traces the line of Adam through Seth. That's all it does. It doesn't do anything else. It focuses on the line of Adam through Seth. It focuses, in other words, on the holy seed of the woman through the line of Seth. In the last two verses of chapter 4, we read of, of, a, of a new beginning for humanity, which was marked by the birth of Seth. Um, let me just quickly read that. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. You remember that Abel was, was murdered. Um, For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom came slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son. And so on. And he called his name Enos. And so on. So that marked a new beginning. This is the son whom Eve considered to be another seed to replace Abel, who Cain slew. Um, I imagine that you know Eve. Every time she had a baby, and she had many, we'll mention that a bit later. She must have wondered: Is this the one? Is this the promised? Is this the promised Messiah? Um, but she saw something special 
he was sad because he saw it as God's replacement for the son whom she had lost. So the genealogy in chapter 5 is very narrowly focused on the covenant line among the Sethite descendants of Adam. Very important to understand that. There were many other lines, um, but they received barely a mention in, in, in Genesis. Uh, frequently in chapter 5, we read of Genesis, we get the general phrase, um, and begat sons and daughters. Um, but we're not told anything about them. One example is Adam himself, where we're told in verse 4 that he begat sons and daughters. But we don't know anything about most of them. So the thing to understand is that this list, this genealogy, is not complete. It's very selective. But the common feature about this select group is simply this, that those listed in Genesis 5 are God's people. They're the covenant people. Um, the covenant people of God, the elect, the remnant. And even in those days, and we're going back into the mists of time here, even then many were called, but few were chosen. It's a principle that applied right from the very start even in the earliest mists of time. So what we have here is a record of the Sethite line. This, this Messiah, this promised seed, would come through the line of one of Adam's sons, only Seth. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, um, relates something very important the end of that chapter the end of that verse it says that the Sethites began to call upon the name of the Lord mm. now, Jonathan Edwards is, some, is someone worth reading on that, on that verse in his work the history of the work of redemption he very, uh, very powerfully writes about this Phrase. These Sapphites identified as those who belonged to the Lord. They men began to call upon the Lord. They are identified as God's people, Yahweh's people. They proclaim God's sovereignty and put their faith in the gospel promise that I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Between, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You'll get fed up, fed up with me repeating that verse in this series, but it's one of the most, well, probably the most important verse to memorize. They called on the name of the Lord. And just imagine the rest of the world, we've already seen this from the genealogy in chapter 4. The rest of the world were doing the exact opposite. The Sethites were calling upon the name of the Lord, but the rest of the world were doing the complete opposite. 4 verse 17 says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch, and he builded a city. And we were 
Remember from last time that he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. He wasn't calling on God, was he? He was boastfully naming a city uh, in pride after his own son. Or chapter 6, verse 1, where human kings began calling themselves the sons of God. And they took wives of all which they chose. And so this verse in twenty. In 4.26 is a record of a remnant a remnant of God's people who laid hold on God and confessed his name it was like they had a like we do outside, it was almost like they had a banner outside their church not that they had a church but um, this banner was saying Yahweh in him do we trust we put our trust in Yahweh. Yahweh is our God. And so this time, this time long, long ago, in a world which no longer exists, we read of a true people of God. Isn't that amazing? Going back this far, a small remnant calling upon the name of the Lord. A people in, in a covenant with Yahweh, in the midst of an anti-God, anti-Christ world, plummeting headlong towards the judgment of the flood. And yet God had, had more people yet. Um, and they continue to raise a banner for Yahweh. Psalm 20 verse 5 of course they wouldn't have known this verse but it could have referred to them. It says we will rejoice in thy salvation in the name of our God we will set up our banners. You know we're, we're not just us as a church here but we're a remnant aren't we? The, the elect people of God. We're in covenant with God, with Yahweh with the Lord in an anti-God, anti-Christ world that's heading towards the judgment of fire. We're just like this uh, people of God. So far and so long ago. And what I want us to do tonight is to try and use our imagination because we have to look under, underneath the text here a bit because there's not a lot of data to try and imagine what this group was like and, and what were the similarities, what were the differences between us and them and what can we learn from them. One thing we know is it was the same, they worshipped the same God and they were saved by grace in the same way as we are. There are just two things I need to say before we do that because that's really what the point of this sermon is, is to just look at some similarities and maybe some contrasts. But there's two things I do need to say, otherwise we'll, we'll go down the wrong road with it. We have to remember, firstly, that this is not Israel. Israel is miles away. It's, it's in the far horizon here from where we are in the scripture. So, in a way, forget Israel um, at this point. 
Um, in, in, so later development, and we'll come on to talk about Israel later on in the series, it had a very specific purpose, and people don't often don't understand understand it, and they get confused and mess things up. But so I want to really spend some time talking about Israel. But this has got nothing to do with Israel. This remnant and community we're considering tonight was is not a theocracy like Israel. They had to live like us, cheek by jowl, with the city of man, with the common grace world. They didn't have their own territory where they killed everybody and, um, and made sure that there was no sin there at all. They, they had to live in the real world, in the city, next to the city of man. It's a community of God's people more comparable to the New Testament church, our day, actually, than Israel. Um, Israel was a typological theocratic kingdom. Um, and this community that we're talking about tonight was not typical, it was real. They were a real group of believers living very similar to us. That's what Peter says, it contrasts their world and our world. And there are some points of difference with the New Testament church, which I'll come on to, but there are a number of similarities. So it's not Israel. The other thing that we have to say briefly is that the scripture makes it clear that the preservation of the seed of the woman would be through the line of Seth. And so we have this genealogy in chapter 5, um, and we know nothing about all these other lines of humanity, or all these other children of Adam and Eve. So it's not, that isn't, so therefore it's not necessarily the case, and I'm sure it wasn't the case, that there weren't elect people in these other lines. There would have been saved people in other families and other genealogies. But we don't know anything about them. And we know that, that as communities of, of, of the redeemed, as, as covenant communities, they didn't last. They didn't survive. They perished in the flood. Only one covenant community survived, and that was the Sapphite community. Um, and therefore, it isn't necessarily the case that others were not saved, but in terms of God's redemption plan, it was only through one covenant line that the seed of the woman would be preserved from the old world into the new. Another thing to say is that it doesn't also necessarily mean that every single Sephite was, was part of the elect, as in a personal salvation. Similar to the church today, they may well have been part of the covenant community, and yet in their own hearts they weren't saved. So just bear those two things. If it was two, no, three or four. <laughs> those things I've just said, and many, many they won't forget, in mind as we now come on 
to look at just a couple of really important things that I think we can learn from tonight about this covenant community so early in the history of the world. I, I, I just find it amazing that God has preserved a record of this community of his people. So the first thing I want to say, and I don't have very clever um, headings for this, so, but the first thing I want to say is that the very centre of their worship, of their calling upon the name of the Lord, was a visible earthly altar with animal sacrifice. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that in Genesis 5, but we know it for a fact for two reasons, and I'll now go on to explain. At the very centre of their worship was, was, was altar worship, A-L-T-A-R, an animal sacrifice. And we know this because, firstly, the martyr Abel, for whom Seth was the divine replacement, had the altar of God at the very centre of his life. He continually, by faith, offered acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. In Hebrews 11 verse 4 it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. And so, Seth, for whom he was the replacement for Abel, of course would have carried on divine worship in that way, in the way of Abel, with the altar being central to Christian worship. In the views of our Christian, but divine worship. The Sapphite line would continue the true worship of Yahweh. And we know from Scripture that altar worship was central to the life of God's people right up until the time of the Messiah, who was the true altar, who fulfilled. There was no need for an earthly altar once the Lord Jesus Christ came. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But the way that God's people worshipped right up until then was through altar worship and the sacrifice of animals. To be totally accurate, there was a crossover period even when Jesus was upon the earth and until the destruction of, the, uh, of, of uh, the temple where animal sacrifice continued. But once the temple, <coughs> Herod's temple was destroyed, animal sacrifice never came back. Synagogue worship took the place of temple worship. <clears throat> so we know, first of all, because at the beginning of this line, this genealogy, altar worship is central. But we also know, conversely, that at the end of this Sephardic line, or at least in terms of the genealogy, an earthly altar was also at the centre of their worship. What was the first thing that Noah did uh, when he exited the ark? 
what would be the first thing you did? You've been in the ark, I think it was for a year, and um, you finally can leave the cramped conditions of the ark and the stink of the animals and stretch your legs. And you know, what was the, what would be the very first first thing you would do? Well, the first thing Noah did was to build an altar unto the Lord, and he took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. In other words, Noah prioritized the reinstitution or the continuance of religious worship in the Sapphite land. He renewed the sacrificial form of worship which had been at the centre of the worship of God before the flood and made sure it was the very first thing he kick-started after he left the ark. And so we know at the beginning and at the end that the altar was at the very centre of religious life. And it was at the altar that men called upon the name of the Lord. They called upon Yahweh by name for protection, for deliverance, to renew their commitment to him. And just picture how they would have been surrounded by the people of, of, the, of the world, the city of man, who, who would have erected all sorts of altars to their idols, to their false idols, to their groups. But there was this small remnant of God's people who built altars and made right sacrifices to the Lord, the God of all the earth. And this continued to be the case, or at least it was meant to be the case, until Christ came. The altar, these sapphires made, would have been now often just a rock or a loosely organised arrangement of stones in the open air. There'd be no building. Um, something that could be built quickly so that people... Um, wouldn't have far to travel from one altar to another, so each local community could go to the altar of worship. Usually no tool would have been used to build the altar, and it would have been placed under the open sky where the smoke of the burnt offering would ascend up into heaven. And they are there in public witness and testimony, in front of all the people of the world, they would place the, their sacrifice upon the rock, upon the stone, and call upon the name of the Lord, and worship the God of all the earth. What a, what a witness, what a testimony. And after the flood, we see this pattern of, um, of this connection between the building of altars and men calling upon the name of the Lord, right through the Old Testament. Give many examples. We read of, of Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 8, how um, this is when he, he he removed from where he was to a mountain on the east of Bethel. This is Genesis 12, verse 8, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, a 
And there he builded an altar unto the Lord. And what? He called upon the name of the Lord. There is always this connection between the altar, the building of the altar, worship at the altar, and this calling upon the name of the Lord. Again in, in Genesis 13, verses 3 and 4, Abraham went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. So he'd gone back to this altar he'd built some time ago. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. There we see it again. And then we think of Isaac. After the Lord appeared to Isaac at Beersheba, we read in Genesis 26-25 that Isaac builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And so it was at these simple altars, and later the altar in the tabernacle and the, the temple later on, which were more ornate, they had horns and they were, uh, you know, they, they were probably shaped. But in these simple altars, men and women, children, dedicated themselves to God. They worshipped Jehovah. Sometimes they gave names to their altars, to these altars, which gave expression of their love and devotion to the Lord. And we read of that in Scripture too. We think of Abraham naming the, the place where he, where he sacrificed the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. says in chapter 22 verse 14 and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide mm. and we think of Jacob after his dream in Genesis 28 how dreadful is this place he said there is none, this is none other than the house of God this is the gate of heaven he said but in verse 18 we read that Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And then in verse 19 it says he called the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Later God would tell Jacob to return to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar unto God. In 35, 7 of Genesis, it says he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. And then we think of Moses in Exodus 17, verse 15, where Moses built an altar and he called the name of it Jehovah Nissai, the Lord my banner. We could go through many examples how these altars, simple altars, were built and men poured out worship and they gave a name often to the altar that they, they had loosely arranged. So when we think of this period before the fall, uh, before the flood I should say, 
this city of God, this covenant community. We should imagine um, generation after generation of families centered around these altars of the Lord, at the very center of their religion, where they ask God for protection and they worship God, they dedicated themselves to God. fast forwarding to many thousands of years later the altar and the sacrifices upon the altar would be formalised in the law and they would become types and shadows of the ultimate altar, the ultimate sacrifice in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't have an altar of course when the Catholic Church does and high Anglicans do but we have no altar we don't need one because it is at the cross that we have the altar fulfilled. It's at the cross that we find the true sanctuary where, where we're provided with protection from the penalty of sin. And the cross is the, the sacred place where we enter Bethel, where we enter the house of God. And just as central as the altar these altars were to these early communities of God so central should be the cross to our worship that is the centre of our religious life that place that real altar where the Lord Jesus Christ died as the ultimate sacrifice fulfilling all the sh shadows and the types there is no need anymore for any more sacrifice. No need for an altar. No earthly altar is required. And when we see altars in churches, and they call them altars, and they, they, they performing a ritual of sacrifice, it's blasphemous. There is no further sacrifice required. And so... As we picture these amazing people worshipping God in the open air, coming to these altars, which they name often, how much in common we have with them. Of course they didn't know, they wouldn't have been able to describe the you know, justification by faith and substitutionary atonement. Some hear some preachers almost giving that impression that they would be able to give a sermon on, on Romans, and of course they didn't know, but that they, by faith, they, they trusted in, in, in what the sacrifice symbolised. They knew that there was forgiveness with God, and they put their trust in the, in the animal, in the sacrifice, knowing that the animal is only an animal, but they did it by faith, and they knew that God would forgive, that God would accept the sacrifice. And we the same, we, 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 we have to trust that the sacrifice of Christ is enough, is sufficient for our salvation, for the salvation of our souls. And so the first thing I want to say is, is that these altars, they were an altar-worshipping community of God's people. 
The second thing I want to say quickly is that this community, about this community, is that they had, like us, a very clear mission from the Lord. They had a very clear mission from God. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. But just remember briefly that these families, these redeemed families, were full citizens in the city of man, like we said last time. They had to play a part in the building of society, the common grace society, just as we do. Um, they had to take part in the revised and amended cultural mandate, which we spoke about last time. And yet at the same time, just like us, they were to remember that they were also citizens of an unseen city. Of a city that was a heavenly city. And whilst common grace operated in, the, in, in general society, like we've, like we've explained before, that was only to enable the gospel to prosper. It was only there to give security and order sufficient for the promise of the seed of a woman to develop and for the Messiah to come and for salvation to be available to man. And as soon as the day of grace comes to an end, the era of common grace will come to an end. There's no, there's no common grace new heavens and the new earth. The new world will begin without common grace. There will be no need for it. And like us, the Sephites didn't place any hope in the city of man. They were grateful for it. They were grateful for whatever level of order of civil society there was, for, for medicine, for whatever they had in terms of Healthcare or um, civil services, they were grateful for it, but they put no hope in any of it. They knew what the city of man was. They were, they were aware that they were citizens of another country. They were aware, deeply aware, of the mystery of iniquity developing in society. And they had to keep watch, they had to keep watch for this flood. They, they may not have known it was a flood. But they knew that the that judgment was coming. They were God's people. They knew not when the master of the house cometh. Whether it was at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Unless suddenly they were found sleeping just like us. They had to keep a watch. And so they had this perspective on their world. Very similar one to us. I do hope you, you as an individual have that perspective. With this, we can put no hope in this world, in any of the structures of common grace. We're thankful for it. Particularly if we live in a country like this with so much freedom and a rich heritage. But we still can't trust it. It could change. And, and this is not the kingdom of God. We're not called to build the kingdom of God in social services, in, 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 in any kind of social gospel, that's a false gospel. 
Any benefit to society is an indirect one. Individual Christians are, should become doctors and nurses and whatever it might be and do good. But that isn't the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel and to warn of the judgment to come. That was the main purpose. That was one of the main missions, as we now go on to see, of this Sapphite people of God. So let's narrow down quickly to what their mission really was. It won't be too much longer. First of all, they were called to be priests. They were called to be priests. At this point I need to repeat myself and say forget about Israel at this point. The nation of Israel is in the far horizon of history at this point. Um, the Sapphites were like us Christians today. They were all, all of them, called to be priests. They were called like us, like us, to build themselves up as a holy temple of God. They were called to a priestly mission by the altar. That was the point of the altar, to create a community around the worship of God, to build each other up and to grow in holiness as a covenant people of God. I'm sure the fathers of the heads of the, heads of the families would have taken the lead in worship and in the sacrifices, but there was no formal priestly office. There were no Levites. All were priests. There was no earthly house of God, no tabernacle, no temple. They simply worshipped at the nearest altar. And covenant families gathered and worshipped the true God. Presumably keeping the Sabbath days and say so, but we presume that the Sabbath routine was kept, and I'm sure they met at other times. And here as priests, the whole people of God rendered worship to the Lord, and they offered sacrifice and petition and praise, and that's what we do when we gather. It's the priesthood of all believers. We don't have priests. We don't have clergy and laity. We're all priests. We all bring our sacrifice of praise. And their priestly mission, like us, was the sanctification of themselves to God. You see, that's the difference between them, us, between them and Israel, which comes later in Revelation, and I'll go on and talk about this more specifically. Israel built a house of God, a tabernacle originally, and then a temple at the symbolic level. The Sapphite people of God, just like us, were building, really building, the temple of God in its truest sense, as in their own community of Believers. They were building a spiritual temple of God. Where there is the priesthood, as I say, of all believers. And our mission today is as priestly as theirs. 
We as individual Christians are being built in, into a temple, a kind of people temple. That's what the church is described as in the New Testament. It's not a building as such. We, we like a building, but we can survive without a building. The true building, if you like it, is a spiritual building. It's a spiritual temple. It's you and I. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 21 and 22, in whom all the building, in whom all, he calls it a building, although he's not talking about a building. Interesting, isn't it? He says, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are building together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? What the church is? It's a building without any bricks or stones or a roof. Made up of, of us. Being built together for a purpose. And what is that purpose? To be a habitation of God through the Spirit. And that, that, that transforms church, doesn't it? That's, what, that's the point of our existence. We're being built to be the, the place where God dwells. His habitation. In, in, individually, but, but more importantly in a way, together. That's the true church of Christ. We're a habitation of God and we're built together. And we're growing. And we're framed together. It's amazing, isn't it? Unto into a holy temple, unto the that's what we are. That's what we are, we need to understand when we meet. We're not, we don't just come to sing a few hymns and listen to a sermon. We're being built together. God's doing something. He's making us His habitation, where He lives. Live in the tabernacle in the holy of holies anymore. That's not where He meets. That's not the axis point between heaven and earth anymore. It used to be began in Eden on that mountain, then it moved to the tabernacle, then the temple, and now it's us. That's the axis of, of earth and heaven, where heaven and earth meet, it's here, where tr the true redeemed of the Lord meet there, where there is even just two or three who are gathered, there I am in the midst, Jesus says. And the amazing thing is that started all, all this time ago around these stones and rocks. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Ye also, as lively living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Not just a man at the front, not just a, some kind of priest, all of us come, we gather as a holy priesthood, as the new Levites, to offer up not goats or, or, or lambs, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And what was acceptable to God in the Old Testament was the best, the unblemished, that which cost the most, the most expensive the most 
important firstborn was given to God. And it's exactly the same. We shouldn't come uh, to church and give of our worst, to just give some of our attention and concentration, just to give a passing ear to the sermon or, or, or daydream during the hymn. Our responsibility is to engage with God, not with the man at the front. The man at the front might be, not, might be like me, not that interesting, but that isn't the point. We engage with God. And we offer, what do we offer? We offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God by Jesus. I really think most people don't understand what church is. If they did, I mean, if we really understand what we're doing, we would come in awe and reverence and joy. We'd, we'd fall before God. And we'd call upon the name of the Lord like these Sathites. This isn't theoretical, this is real. When we meet, something happens. God is here. Uh, and we can't be... What's the word? We, we can't be careless about it because we're in the presence of, of a holy God. That was a bit of a digression. Coming to an end. There is one point of difference which I notice, however... Between this Sapphire community and, and the New Testament church here in Genesis 5, is that their focus, and it's our focus too, as we've seen, was very localized and ultra focused. It was concentrating on the edification of the saints, um, but there was no missionary dynamic that appeared to be. They didn't go into all the world and preach the gospel. Our situation is different. We are called upon to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the world, beginning where we are. The priesthood of Jesus has changed everything. The altar is now a heavenly one, a universal altar. However, as we've seen, there's much in common, a shared focus on holiness, spiritual holiness of the saints. And now, finally, really importantly, not only were they called to be priests, they were called to be witnesses of Yahweh. They weren't, there wasn't a missionary call, but they were called nonetheless to be a covenantal witness. I mean, they couldn't really help it, could you? I mean, if we, if we had our services outside in the middle of world, on the streets or in the fields, I mean, we'd immediately be witnessing anyway, because people think, what are all those strange people doing? That's what they did. They gathered around these stones, and they worshipped under an open sky. And they called upon the name of the Lord, and they confessed God's sovereignty over all creation. It was a call to the world to turn from idols and render allegiance to Yahweh. No doubt these communities suffered from the seed of the serpent. No doubt they were persecuted. There were a tiny number left when we get to the time of the ark. 
Only eight were saved. Many, no doubt, were martyred in a hostile world. But like us, they were called to be faithful witnesses. And we've run out of time, and I won't go on, we will complete this next time. And go on to give some examples of how they were faithful witnesses. And how in two individuals in particular, they preached the word. They preached a prophetic word in Enoch and in Noah. Two great prophets of God. We'll, we'll talk about that next time, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. But just to say, in closing, you know, we're not here only to build each other up and to build ourselves up. The whole of the Christian life isn't just about our edification. It's a big part of it. Because the stronger we are, the better. The holier we are, the better. But that isn't the whole of the Christian life. It's also to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. We'll do it on Saturday. And on other occasions. We are to be a faithful witness. We don't want to be like the Pharisees and, and, and parade our religion. But the world needs to have some contact with us so that they can see our witness. We need to, to be a public witness to the Lord God and to be a faithful witness. To be a martyr. A martyr literally means a witness. A martyr is a witness. It's come to mean a witness by death at the hands of, the, of evil people. But we can be martyrs without dying. We can be witnesses. We can take up our cross daily and follow him. And may we do so tonight and, and all nights and every day for his sake.